Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Cultivation discussion. Today we are joined by Michelle Bush, a partner at Silverstein Pomerantz Law Firm. Michelle began her tax practice with the Tax and Revenue Division of the Utah Attorney General's Office, where she handled individual income tax, sales and use tax, and property tax matters on behalf of the Utah State Tax Commission. After becoming the property tax section chief for that office, she litigated state-assessed property tax matters involving public utilities, telecommunications, airlines, railroads, pipelines, and mining properties. Michelle moved to Colorado and served as an assistant city attorney with the city and county of Denver. During her tenure, she has litigated numerous local taxation and bankruptcy matters before administrative hearing officers and in Colorado courts. We are lucky to have Michelle join us today to give us her insight, especially from the perspective of someone who challenges tax law within the court system. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to be here. And as always, Saltivation's Judy Vondren. Hello, everyone. (laughs) Michelle, I gave an incredibly high summary of your background, but walk us through the progression of your career. Yeah, you bet. So... You know, I graduated from law school in 1992, which doesn't, it sounds longer ago than it feels. And um, at the time, I was law clerking for the Utah Attorney General's office, and they had an opening in their tax division. So, you know, it's not like I set out to become a tax attorney, but that was the job, you know, that I was able to get. And so I've been doing SALT since I was a brand new baby lawyer. Um started off doing really low level stuff individual income tax they uh they put you know always the lowest person on the totem pole you get put with the tax protesters so i got to deal with a lot of the folks who think that you know they don't have to pay income taxes because there's fringe on the flag and things like that so worked my way up there doing sales and use you know a little bit of corporate franchise tax individual income tax then eventually moving to the really large state assessed property tax group. So, you know, that's huge litigation. You're talking about properties that cross state and county lines, their values are in the billions of dollars. So that was my primary focus starting in about 1999. And then I did that. I had a brief stint uh, at Salt Lake County for about a year. Uh, I, I moved from the Utah AG's office to go to the Salt Lake District Attorney's office to do exclusively property tax. And that was supposed to be a long-term career move, but then things changed and our family decided to move to Colorado. So, you know, I, I negotiated a year off to be with my kids who were young at the time, uh, three and five. And then after my daughter said, mom, when can we go back to daycare? That's uh, <laughs> time to start looking for a job. And magically Denver had uh, an opening and the the job listing said, we're seat uh, you know, we're searching for someone with 10 to 15 years of state and local tax litigation experience in all of these areas, sales and use, property, like they're looking for me. I mean, how there really aren't, you know this, Judy, there aren't a lot of us. Um, so applied for that job, um, was fortunate enough to get it and spent five years with Denver doing locally assessed property taxes and sales and use tax and learning about Colorado's home rule city environment because Utah doesn't have that. 
so that was a whole new uh wow i mean that's that's a, that's a word for colorado's you know taxing system i think that's the technical term for it yeah it's definitely ooh, you know it, it's hard to comply with all of the the home rule cities and their different interpretations and that so you know i spent five years with denver and uh, learned a lot and uh, worked with a lot of great people represented the uh, treasury division there and it just turns out i was fortunate enough to uh, have an opportunity to join neil pomerantz and mark medina at silverstein and pomerantz in the denver office so been there since 2012 and uh I think that's, you know, if I have my way, that's that's where I'll die. So um, it's a great it's a great practice, um, and I'm glad I made the change. So does that mean you cr- you cross sides representing the city and then now representing taxpayers? Exactly, just doing the exact same stuff, switching sides as Neil. You know, some people that I used to work with say I've gone to the dark side. Yes. Neil says he rescued me from the dark side. So I suppose <laughs> it's a matter of uh, perspective. Are you allowed to say which one you prefer more? <laughs> you know, I think every time I, wherever I worked, it was the right thing at the time. You know, when I was just starting out, I was also in the Army National Guard. And so I chose public practice because I didn't really foresee that I could do military service in a reserve capacity and be in private practice. And I also had a young family. So that was just the right thing. Um, now this is, it's the right thing for me to be in private practice. I can leverage my experience, you know, and my relationships and my knowledge um, to do even a more broad, broadly challenging practice. So so if, is that a good way of avoiding an answer to your question? It's as if you haven't been listening to all the political stuff going on where no <laughs> answers are given whatsoever. You don't have to clarify. Well, if Neil is listening, then I prefer what I'm doing now. Yes. The, uh, the lifelong commitment needs to say, I prefer <laughs> the yes. business side. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's been an excellent move and I'm glad I made it. Wasn't it just overwhelming coming here, though, from Utah? I mean, I feel like Utah has its complexities, but a heck of a lot simpler than 71 home rule cities, one state, 683 statutory cities. I mean, we for such a small state, we have such a complicated state state tax system. And you wonder why, like, why were we like this? I mean, and then I was say, I, um, I think we were talking earlier where Denver, the population is probably equivalent to the population of Utah. I mean, I'm going to go right now. I haven't done it yet, but I think it's almost the same amount of humans. So even though you represent an entire state, Denver is a very large metropolitan area. So really it's a very different mentality in sort of the city versus state, but similar population issues. So a lot of work, honestly, and a lot of nuance and a lot of businesses. And, you know, you've got your metro area in Utah, Salt Lake City and Provo and some of that. And then you've got your outlying areas with your recreational areas, ski areas and so forth. So you kind of have a little bit of the same of what we have here, honestly, metro area schools, and then you've got your skis and your your fishing and all the different things that Colorado provides to its citizenry and, and visitors. So similar right. issues, but we have such a crazy system. Did you comment no doubt about it? Oh my gosh, what is wrong with us? <laughs> well, when I first got here and somebody said, oh yeah, you've got to figure out the home rule 
uh, home rural cities. And I, I've nodded my head like, yeah, I've got to do that. And then I'm thinking, what the heck is that? So I think I had to Google it even to figure out what that meant because that was a whole new thing. It's definitely, um, and that is one of the main reasons I'm really glad I spent five years with Denver. Oh, I don't yeah. think, you know, you can grasp the home rule environment unless you work in it or work with it. I mean, and, and even then, you know, there are still things I have to say, does Denver's code say that? Even though I worked there and looked at this code and read it all the time, I have to keep looking at it. And there's just so many moving parts and, you know, and so even if Denver has the same code, a neighboring city has the exact same code, but for whatever reason, they interpret it and apply it differently. So then you have those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then business is morphing all the time, right? And it's not keeping yeah. up. So like, I, I'm just curious and in lieu of those two experiences, like in terms of enforcement, right? You were working on behalf of enforcement in both jurisdictions. And now you're working on behalf of like valid enforcement. I would, I would argue like don't overreach, <laughs> right. right? Like you wouldn't right. have a case if you didn't think the government was overreaching to my mind. If people were good with investments, they would pay them, right? They don't hire an attorney if they're, if they feel comfortable with what the decision is and they're not comfortable with the decision. So what framework do you bring with regards to that? Giving your position as a government administrator and say, these are valid. Now you're saying, wait a minute, there's some overreaching here. Where is your thoughts on that? Right. Right. Well, and first, uh, I think what you're saying is the taxpayers who make challenges to things that are overreaches, I think that's even a small percentage of the actual overreach. Okay. Because, you know, you have a small company that gets a very small assessment. It's certainly, you know, they have to make a business decision. Are you going to pay somebody $30,000 to fight a $20,000 assessment? Yeah. And that's just an example. And so there's a lot of um, overreach, I think, that happens that just never gets called on. Yep. The cities become emboldened by that. So we hear all the time, we've always imposed this tax. Nobody's ever challenged it. I heard that when I was with Denver. Okay. Um, Nobody ever challenges this. And then you start looking, well just because nobody's challenging it doesn't mean it's the right application. doesn't mean it's the wrong application. Correct. Correct. But, you know, longstanding practice is what the cities love to say, well, this is what we've been always doing. Well, let's look at your code and see what your code permits you to do. So, you know, from the client perspective, there are situations where the client feels like it's an overreach and we have to tell them, you know, in this case, it's not the city got it right this time. And we do that when, when it makes sense. But yeah, I mean, if you, you're, you're, it's a balancing act, right? The cities are, and I genuinely having worked with auditors at Denver and Utah, most of the auditors that we encountered, they're just trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. They have been told what they, their code means. They've, Mm -hmm. you know, they've got an understanding and our clients are trying to do the right things. I think it's a really, really rare case where you have either an auditor who's blatantly trying to push things that they think are, are beyond the scope of their code or a taxpayer that is absolutely a scofflaw. I mean, so, but it's a balancing act. You've got to figure out where that line is. And I think that's the, that's the constant tension because the economy is always evolving. Products are always yes. evolving. The way people do business is evolving. But in Colorado, because of Tabor, the codes don't get to evolve, uh-uh. you know? Yeah. So you got to lock yourself into this 1992, 1991 environment. And can that code have predicted 
the new services, the new economy, the new kinds of products that are rolling out. And so the cities have to be creative, if you will, to try and figure out how they administer these. Doesn't sound like an older code, but you know, there's a lot that's different from 1992. And it's very hard to make laws, as we all know. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a time-consuming, years-long process. It doesn't just happen overnight if it's put together thoughtfully. Well, and especially when you when you have to push things out because of Tabor, you know, to a vote of the people. You know, I I I live in Denver, so I vote, you know, on Denver measures. Reading, you know, I get my blue book for the state, I get my blue book for Denver, and I'm reading kind of the ballot initiatives. It's like I have no idea what this means. So like things aren't written such that you can that the constituents can really understand what they're yeah. vo- you know, what they're trying to vote for that is yeah. really at the best interest of the state or the city or the whatever. Right. Right. That is now, so even, yeah. Even as a tax practitioner, I had to read the blue book on the Gallagher Amendment thing mm-hmm. multiple times. Yeah. And I'm still not sure, you know, that the I understand. Words are it. what they are meant to say. No, I could not agree more. I'm reading the language of this ordinance and the state or whatever. The language. And I'm thinking, what are you really saying? And then I read the pros and the cons and I'm like, okay, I guess this is a pragmatic application on this side versus this side. And even that wasn't that clear to me. And this is right. a whole issue we have now on whether or not to allow our residential property taxes to increase, which has right. been something that's been falsely kept low for many years to our benefit. As I look at property taxes around the nation, Colorado has some of the lowest. Um, right. Yeah. So very interesting issue. And I'm not a big fan of property taxes going up with fair market value personally, because people pay a certain price when they buy and that's kind of right. what they expect. And so why should they have this false inflation being in their tax base when it's not even a known thing? Right. And it could dip and right. go up and down and, but I'm going to live in my home for until I die maybe. And now I've got these taxes that are going up and up and up. So right. that troubles me to be honest as a, as a taxpayer. So Right. But I think if you even look at the blue book on the the initiative that's on the ballot now, the Gallagher Amendment initiative, I think even if you can understand what the initiative says, it's not clear what it means or what it's going to do. It's it's not clear to voters. If I vote yes, what does this mean for me? And what does this mean for the business down the street? I think that, you know, and I'm not sure we even know know, what the answer is to that. Yeah. Michelle, you know, I know, you know, there's this process within Colorado of trying to simplify everything from a sales tax perspective, the SUTS system, you know, one point of central registration, central remittance. But we've heard kind of on like multiple levels that the cities really didn't, tr- and maybe this is evolving, the cities didn't trust the state to collect the money that they're due. And that, you know, there was just this tension of relinquishing control to someone else. Did you find that when you were working at the city? Well, I think it's fair to say that the cities with their home rule uh, thinking necessarily have, you know, this idea that we got to do this, especially a big city who is not just self-collecting, but they're not even farming that out. They have their own collection group. I mean, Denver's very large and some Mm -hmm. of the cities are small enough that they can't do that. So I think maybe the thought process would be different from a city like Denver or Aurora, some city that's large enough that has their staff. So I wouldn't say I felt like there was distrust between the cities and the state so much as the desire to retain control 
and uh, have your fingers on everything. I mean, I think, honestly, I think it would be hard to say that the state isn't to be trusted to collect the money and to divvy it out, especially if the cities have an ability to to review the records. And, you know, certainly they do, or they should. But no, I never felt like there was a high level of distrust between uh, Denver and the state. And I don't, I don't sense that now, at least. Um, That's good. Correct me if I'm wrong, Judy, if you I hear that. More but, the you know. count, I perceive it to be in the counties and the outlying areas. Yeah, there was a lot of feedback during the discourse around the set system about you're not going to get the right people in the jurisdiction. You don't know where we are. You, well, and then some of the cities don't even have good meets and bounds, right? It's all paper. Like they don't even have a good system of record of knowing who's where. And we got some comfort around that because we bought a third party, the state bought a third party system called TTRES that actually went in and rooftop rated everybody. I mean, they cited everything, spent tons of man hours Spatially figuring out where everything is so they could accurately reflect the jurisdictional boundaries of a of a of a rate. So, you know, you know, City County is an amoeba or a parallelogram or whatever the heck the shape is that fits over the overlay of the city. And then you've got the RTD. So just all those go into different cities and counties and all that. So there was a lot of fear, I think, outside of Denver um, about where they were, but that was partly related to bad technology, to be honest, or, or lack of technology, honestly, and resources to really accurately measure where people are. And these are remote areas with maybe 5,000 people in it, people in them. I mean, good group. How are you going to map? How are you going to justify spending the cost to figure out where things are? I mean, to some degree, right. it's just, but the cities, the state's already collecting for all the statutory cities and counties. So the state's already doing that. And right. some of those are in outlying areas. So yeah, once you get the boundaries figured out and then you can have a system you can trust for sourcing, then yeah. Yeah, I remember I remember my internship, like the first summer I worked in public accounting, because um, I walked right into public accounting doing state and local tax. Um, so I'm one of kind of like the weird outliers. Um, but I remember our, you know, sales tax guy pulls out these maps. I was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, I thought we were like tax people and like our nose was in some sort of book, but like this whole map thing. And he's like, all right, well, this is Alamosa County and this is actually this. And it was all like highlighted and written all over. I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm signing up for this. Well, and talk to a company that's doing business in all of those places. Have you ever looked at the um, boundaries of Northland versus Thornton, for example? I mean, good luck trying to figure out you've got an address on one side of the street that's in a city, an address on the other side of the street. And uh, even taxpayers that are trying to get it right, it's a challenge. Yeah. And then they get a trouble on audits. And they're, I mean, it's kind of incumbent on them to know. And it's sort of like, that's sort of ridiculous to thing to do. I mean, you can't even do it based on zip code. You can't do it on name and address information because you could say it's in Denver, but it's in North Grand from a tax perspective. I'm like, how are people supposed to know that? It's just craziness. Right. Well, because a lot of mailing addresses that are actually in Glendale have a Denver, they say Denver. Yep. Um, because Glendale is a little donut hole in Denver. And so, yeah, you got to really want to get it right. And did you ever get any history as to why it was like that? How would that get, how does it get done when you're building something that it becomes this different pie shape, whatever shape amoeba that covers one thing versus another? Well, how about, does that happen from a building perspective? Why don't we have yeah. clearer lines? I don't know. I, yeah. 
that's I, I live on the I live on Sheridan and apparently like right down the middle of Sheridan is Wheat Ridge and then I'm Denver. I mean it's that close to where I live. Wow. I learned and- that the I learned that the hard way because we were driving north on Sheridan mm-hmm. and we got rear-ended, so we had to call the police. But I was filtered to the like Wheat Ridge, yep. like non-emergency line. They're like, I was like, you know, I'm on 38th and Sheridan. They're like, well, are you going northbound or southbound? I was like, well, I'm northbound. I'm like, well, that's Denver, so we need to transfer you to Denver. Yep. And, <laughs> and so it's the lake, what is it? Lakeside amusement park. And that's a little township. It is. Yeah. And so there's little cops, you know, doing this little small remote area and they handle that side of the street. So they're constantly okay. giving people speeding tickets on that side of the street. A friend of mine got a wow. ticket there. She said it was very expensive. Yes. It's and a nice I- little revenue raise for them because they don't really have any commerce, you know, of any meaningful uh, Molly's, I guess. I think that's in that jurisdiction. Molly's <laughs> it's, it's a good thing your accident wasn't in the middle of the street, like in a turn lane or right? something. I was where- like... Who knows? Are you sitting in the driver's side or are you in the passenger side? <laughs> right. Because then <laughs> at the end of the day, it didn't really matter because it was, it was an uninsured driver. And it's like, I don't know who's going to pay for it. What police report didn't really matter because we were on the hook for it. Right. <laughs> I digress. Well, so then, you know, what do you have any kind of like opinions on the set system? Like, do you, you know, I don't know. It's just this it's this thing it's in place. Do you think it's a good thing? Um, you know, I know Judy's been working really hard on it and I know she said that you've kind of. Well, Nita was a part of it, her partner. So right. And come in. I got him at the table to make sure he was there to advocate. So he could be telling these legislators and cities and counties, like don't overreach. Right. But I also sort of, I was sort of like, we've got to get rid of this. I mean, there's just so much non-compliance at the local small business level, and it's too complicated for them to handle. Right. So it's just, the money's not going where it needs to go. And I, and I also believe that the biggest taxpayers end up bearing an undue burden, a greater share of the burden than small taxpayers, because everybody's not contributing in as they should be. And I don't think that's a fair level of enforcement either. Right. Right. Yeah. I think from you know, putting myself in the shoes of our clients, anytime you can remove a barrier to compliance, I think that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because a lot of our clients, no matter how large they are, their tax departments are not always very large. I mean, some of them have large tax departments, but these people that work in the tax departments of our larger clients, they're busting their butt to get this right. And so anytime you can make compliance easier, I think that's a good thing. I do think, you know, it remains to be seen whether big cities like Denver are going to sign in and Aurora. I think that's what it's really going to take to have a meaningful uh, removal of barriers, you know, and I know it's just sales and use tax right now. There are a lot of other other returns our clients have to file, you know, occupational privilege tax. Sometimes the lodging tax is on a different form, you know, so I don't, I wouldn't want to make, um, perfect the enemy of the good because i think every step towards increased uh, transparency removal of barriers is a good thing and i do think if if the cities can get some comfort yeah this these are going to go over here to this portal we're going to get our money we still have our ability to audit we still have our our ability to be made whole if something goes wrong Um, i think you're going to see if if it goes that way that more and more cities will be be comfortable, you know, especially the smaller ones that don't have their own audit staff or their own compliance staff, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, then you, if you give meaningful uh, 
streamlining to companies that maybe haven't been in compliance before, that that can move them, you know, nudge them right uh, towards compliance. And then, you know, I, I always think if there were a ton of money and there was no shortage, do you think we'd have any audits? I kind of wonder, right? When things are- Oh, good, I do. Do you? Like, so there'd be always be a level of some checking in, right? We're still here. We're not just trusting you to do it right. But I just always wonder, as I watch my career, I feel like I have been really busy when things are dire because enforcement kicks in and then my clients get in trouble and I've got to help them. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so that ends up being the push pull. When things are good, my clients usually say, all right, I'm going to fix this. Like, you know, we're ready. We can afford to, well, we want to do the right thing. We just didn't have the resources or the ability to focus on it. Now we will, but I don't know if you feel that way. Then I think, so then I think, well, what do governance think? You know, do they think I will go after because I just should, or do I go after because I um, want to beat people up? right? Or I need the money. Like, what is it? Desperation? Is it, I mean, what is it do you think that creates enforcement at the government level? Because you know that's arbitrary, just I feel like. Right. <laughs> I, I think, and we saw this in the downturn in 08, 09. Yes. Yes. The non-resident you know, audits, the 1099 enforcement. I mean, it, it was crazy. The nexus questionnaire is flying around. Sure. Well, you know, fiscal pressure is, is clearly a driver on that. If the cities get squeezed, you know, if you have a city that, you know, a lot of their revenue comes from sales and use tax and the sales and use tax uh, base goes down, you know, they've got to figure out, okay, how do we bring in, here's what, how they view it. How do we bring into compliance the people who are not complying? Now, do you call that, you know, going after someone or uh, being Enforcing mean to someone? Have always been done. Sure. But I think in good times, there's also let's say really good financial times, the cities know there's a lot of business being conducted and maybe some of it's fallen through the cracks. Maybe these big companies or really, really fast growing companies. We see this a lot with some of our clients who they started up and then all of a sudden their business went crazy and they didn't have the um, compliance structure in place because they didn't think about it. And a lot of companies don't even know about use tax. They've they hear about sales tax because as a consumer, you go into a store, you pay sales tax. You know what that is. But use tax is almost like when you say use tax, people think you're, they look at you and say, I know the words you're using are in the English language, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> That's so true. I have used that and, phrase before. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Yeah. Full disclosure, everyone. <laughs> right. <laughs> so to explain to them, especially new construction companies or new businesses that are in technology, if they're not selling something, but they're providing a service and they're consuming things to do that, they don't have a, a lot of awareness around their use tax reporting obligations. And so what we see is businesses, things go really, really great. And then they get big enough to finally realize they have a problem. Right. And now, okay, now what? Either the city has come knocking because they found you. Yes. Um, because cities, they drive around all the time and they say, oh, that car has a, a wrap on it or it has this or it has that. Or they bought something uh, or someone came to do a service for them or, you know, whatever. They're always looking for new leads for audits. Okay. Well, you know, Michelle, you've given us a lot of kind of, we've talked a lot about the jurisdiction, the city stuff, but that's not who you are today, right? 
I mean, great. Right. You still do it and you still live in Colorado. Great. But, um, you know, has there been a case that you've argued that has had the biggest impact on the way you think about tax and the application of the law? Sure. So, you know, when I was a baby lawyer, I was involved in this two week long slug fest uh, in Utah on some property tax, big oil and gas property. And the going through that trial, it drummed home to me. And it's something I remember in every piece of litigation that I do now, that these are compelling issues. And people think about tax as being, oh, tax, you know, when you go to a party and somebody says, what do you do? Oh, I do tax litigation. They're like, yep, bye. So I, I think I see my friend over there. <laughs> um, but frankly, they're emotional. People get emotionally invested on both sides. And the really un, what underlies for me in every piece of litigation, you've got to tell a story. And you think about, well, this is tax. How can there be a story? Well, that's just not true. There's always a story to be told. So you've got to get really clear grasp of the facts. And you've got to be able to tell a compelling story about why something is either taxable or why it has this value or doesn't have this value. So fundamentally to me, after going through that trial in two weeks, and I'll say we lost that trial because we didn't have the best grasp of the facts. And now every time we take a case that is uh, fact critical, obviously setting aside some cases that are just pure questions of law, you still have to have a compelling story. You know, we litigated this case uh, all the way up to the Supreme Court and prevailed, but it's because we were able to set a compelling story about why this entity was created, what business purposes did it have, um, so that it wasn't a sham entity, you know, the courts gave it substance. But you got to put in that extra work to say, I need to understand the facts, I need to understand the why of it. Um, so for me, tax litigation is just like anything else. You've got to present your story. You've got to be the most compelling. So fundamentally for me, I try to remember that in every piece of litigation, you know. It's not just dry tax work. I was working with your firm on a uh, landscaping client of mine and the city of Denver was going after two of the biggest landscapers in the state to make a point of whether landscapers are retailers or use, you know, what are they, right? And Denver decided they're retailers and they're not thinking they are retailers they're thinking they're contractors, right? And I'm going to this hearing. Um, I, I one of you, someone was there before you at your firm was working with me. I can't remember Rob. I think it was Rob. He so I remember driving there, and it's very stressful for my client because this is like half a million dollars, you know, a million. I mean, it's a lot of money at stake for this client. And I'm driving. I'm very agitated because I want to win. I want to prevail. We want. I believe we're right. We believe the city's wrong, but. I also sort of had this context of like, well, at least it's not Nazi Germany. I don't know why I went to that example, but there was are <laughs> honestly the Holocaust and all that. And I thought, well, all right, that puts a framework around it because you can get really caught up in the money, the money at stake, the risk involved, the the slight people feel people are screened. they don't want to do poorly. They thought they were doing things right. There's just so many things wrapped up in that story. Isn't there? I mean, on both sides, honestly, both get wedded to what they believe is the right answer, both sides. And you have to kind of figure out how to get to the middle of that and yeah. get a resolution. And, and, you know, when you say, when you, when you want to kind of pull together a compelling story, is that 
fact-driven? Do you leave the emotion out, you know, or do you, or is there like this perfect marriage of the two of them? Yeah, I think it has to be, I mean, I would say a little less on the emotion side. There are some cases, especially for small businesses where the emotion does matter, but, um, large businesses, I think the compelling story is mostly factual. Um, but I had the same thing you did, Judy, it's sort of an epiphany when I was in a trial and I was also in the military at the same time. And on my weekends, I was spending my weekends drafting wills and powers of attorneys for kids that were getting deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. And it just drummed home to me. Okay. When I go up, and I argue a tax case, nobody's shooting at me. At the end of the day, it's money. Sure, nobody wants to give away money they don't have to. But when you're in the middle of it, it feels so you know, high stakes and so critical. You always you have to be mindful that put it in perspective. Right, it's not know? life or death. We're not, we're not a surgeon operating on someone's brain, but you know, because I do believe it can get to this thing. I mean, I certainly have felt that way over the, my career because so much is at stake or so much emotion is part of it. And I want to manage that. And then I own it too. I take it in as a, as a, as a helper, as their, as their advocate, right? I'm like, oh, your case is my case. I feel bad for you, even though it's not really my money that's going to be at risk. But um, it's, it's an interesting issue. And you've got to- Especially kind of- for small businesses. I mean, if it's their livelihood. I mean, this is so critical. You miss something and then all of a sudden you're facing a tax assessment that's going to put you out of business um, because of some either misunderstanding or maybe the city has changed their interpretation or their application or just plain honest error. Right. You know, I don't know if and you then you're a, a really good uh, Vietnam. Now, I think it was called. It was where the Chipotle was at California between 16th and 17th. That place had a line going out the door. This restaurant, amazing Vietnamese food. They got put out of business because they were not paying their sales tax correctly. They probably didn't. What a shame. What a shame. I mean, I mean, I, they were there. Yeah. 10 years. I mean, yeah. people love that restaurant. I can't even imagine what that family went through. Honestly, I can't yeah. even imagine because I'm sure they just yeah. didn't know what they didn't know. And they just, the whole business was wiped out. And who, what right. were the questions of all that? Because there was a lot. Yeah. And then you go three years down the road. And if you're a business that should have been collecting from your clients, if you're a Vietnamese restaurant, you can't go, you don't know who your clients are. You can't go out and say, you know, on that pho noodle bowl, we didn't charge you tax on, I'm going to ask you for 18 cents yep. or whatever. Um, yep. And that puts them out of business. I just remember being, and even a few years ago, I remember seeing some notices on some doors downtown Denver, which was shut down for sales tax, you know, errors or whatever. I mean, some of the notifications were like, $5,000, $2,800 liens. I'm like, that wipes out this? I, but it can't. It really can't. I'll tell you, uh, before recreational marijuana became a thing, you know, the dispensaries were working really hard to start collecting sales tax because it was a pathway towards legitimacy. I was working with Denver at the time and the the guy in charge said, well, what if they don't pay their sales taxes? Can I seize their inventory and sell it at tax sale. <laughs> I'm thinking that would have been the most uh, amazingly well-attended tax sale in Denver's history. I mean, I and then you can walk out the door and get busted for possession right. and then right. have to pay the fines for, for possession. Right. Right. Or distribution. The city and right? county of Denver is now a distributing uh, marijuana 
but oh, that uh, been kind of funny. I see your dog. Yeah, hi, sweetie. Legal issue you would be thinking about, right? Right. I told them no. I'm like, even if you had the legal right to do, let's not. Yeah, we're we're not going to do that. Well, and then kind of with with that, do you see kind of anything in our future of where you think you might be litigating some contentions? If you had a crystal ball, is there kind of like, you know? Can you foreshadow anything that may come from a litigation perspective? Sure. I think in the short term, we don't know yet what COVID is going to mean for our taxing jurisdictions and for our businesses. You know, I hear from property tax clients all the time who they, they couldn't use their facilities or it's a landlord whose businesses were not allowed to use the facilities. So they have either, you know, vacancy or they weren't able to collect rent. So that's going to be a problem. You've got sales tax revenue crazy down in some industries, restaurants, movie theaters, things like that. So I think you might see some short-term COVID. What about occupational privilege tax for those of us who are working remotely? I mean, OPT is usually not high dollar, but you know, if you're a small city and you think, I know those uh, employees used to work in Denver, but we think they're all working somewhere else now. We want that OPT. I don't know if you'll see litigation in those, but if I had a crystal ball, I will tell you the two biggest issues I see are digital products or electronic commerce and tax on electronic commerce. You know, the state's trying to implement a regulation to tax streaming services. We have strong feelings about that, whether that's TPP, tangible personal property, or is it a service? Is it even property? So I think you're going to see a lot of fights over what is TPP and expansion to tax digital goods, electronic goods, things like that. I think that that's going to be many, many years of litigation, if I had to guess. I think you're also going to see, go ahead, Judy. Well, I was just going to say you have to find the right client to take it because like we were talking about earlier, if it's a couple thousand dollars, people are just going to pay it. They're going to move on. They're not trying to take a case that's going to cost them thirty to fifty thousand dollars of fees, three years of emergency. It needs to be material and it needs to be ongoing. So I think those are the challenges where you got to get the right taxpayer to take the case forward, um, or a or group of taxpayers. And you know, honestly, businesses you know only so motivated to do things like that. So well, think- especially if they can pass it on to their customer. If you can pass, yeah. To the Wayfair law that the state enacted saying, well, we already had a statute, therefore we can have a Wayfair law. And I think a lot of us are like, what? You used to do location in common and now we're going to destination collection? Whoa, right? But I haven't seen any litigation on that. We've all just capitulated to it. But I would question whether that was an affair uh, reading of the rule, right? But they said, oh, it's fine. We're going to impose that standard. And we haven't seen any litigation on that. But, you know, that's a stretch of saying the language meant one thing and we curtailed it because of Quill. And now it means something else today because of Wayfair, you know? And that's sort of like administrative enforcement, right? And that's what you were going to see with the streaming is an administrative position saying our statute was written this way and therefore we can tax that. And the answer is really, that's what it meant. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, so I think Nexus, Nexus and marketplace facilitator Wayfair issues. That's the other bucket I was going to highlight. Um, but I think those are all integrated into digital products because who's selling digital products. It's usually people that are 
operating from a remote location to you. I mean, you don't go down to a, a taco cart and buy a, a streaming service or something, you know what I mean? And so I think all of those are tied together. I think really fundamentally, it's the codes that were established in 1990 or 91, trying to keep up with evolving commerce and the evolving economy and the way we do business anymore. And yes, the bigger the bigger vendors, the bigger electronic or marketplaces, they're collecting tax because it's why not? You can pass it on to your customers. Customers become inured to it. Um, they'll pay it. It's going to be the smaller. I, I do believe somebody's going to litigate this issue. Somebody's going to litigate. You know, is a home rule. The home rules are adopting these marketplace ordinances, economic nexus. Is that viable can you have a sub-state can you have nexus in one sub-state jurisdiction by virtue of establishing nexus in another sub-state jurisdiction and now if i sell into denver do i have to collect colorado springs tax um, so i think those are hot button issues but digital goods e-commerce marketplace facilitator i think those are going to be hot button issues going forward well, i don't know like digital goods i don't know if we akin that to advertising but you've probably seen there's been a yeah. maryland trying to impose a digital advertising tax and um you know facebook ads i mean this seo search engine optimization and monetizing monetization of whatever our behavior we want to target to those people so they will come to us and use our services and people pay money for that. I mean, we had a client that spent 300000 a month on Google ads, Google AdWords, I guess, different terms so that when the Google, when you Googled it, you came to their platform to say, we can do that for you. There's serious money in that. So what is that? Advertising has never historically been taxable anywhere, except now we're thinking about it because it's a big moneymaker for these. Uh, I know at least one city that is currently taking the position that digital advertising is tangible personal property and taxable as well, TPP. Denver is tax newsletters when you belong to an organization because it's a newsletter. You're like, I'm just a member and I get this ancillary newsletter and you're arguing that the whole bloody membership is taxable. I mean, yeah, I mean, that has been, or, or LinkedIn ads are taxable. Right. Like what, what? I'm just advertising a position or whatever. That's a taxable service as TPP in Denver. I mean, we have had some fights about that. And what's interesting too is some of our clients spend a lot of money to belong to organizations or have events. I mean, they could spend like $100,000. This isn't like a $20, $350 a year bar association fee, right? It's like something giner than that. So there's some serious money put towards these um, organizations and Denver's like, it's taxable. Right. I think that that's what we're going to see. Anything that has digital is the next wave of, and if you, you know, jump the shark, so do you speak, and to assume that all of that is tangible personal property, where does that end? What's not TPP? Right. And at one point, if you start defining TPP to include anything perceptible to the senses, <laughs> um, how is wind or the massage I might go get later how is that not I, where does where do you draw the line right you know and that's for some senses so, that's why we get them exactly <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> right so that's what I think is coming down the pipe but you know the the Colorado home rule cities 
are are definitely working together to to try to capture tax on these kinds of things. Because it's broaden their taxpayer base is what I see. Absolutely. Right? No, no question about it. Out of state money. That's to me, like you were saying earlier, it's about getting other people's money, not in-state constituencies. We want to treat our in-state businesses well or in-city businesses. We want the money from these other companies selling to our citizens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but they forget it's they're selling to our citizens. So ultimately who's bearing the burden of this tax is clearly the consumer. Absolutely. In the end, it always right. is up. Yeah, no, yeah, no question. Down to you and me. <laughs> yep. Well, then, as we wrap, I just want to ask if there's anything that you feel we should know that we didn't already talk about. Gosh, Do you have I one don't. final thought to leave us with? One final thought. I'm going to just take a quote from my partner Neil Pomerantz. It's not taxable. <laughs> it's not taxable. <laughs> so that's the answer to everything. It's not taxable. So, oh that's... my God, we're gonna have Neil on. We'll let him know. We'll we'll get him on here. Um, obviously, we want to showcase you as a woman in business and a lawyer and a litigator. And with all the things going on in this world of ours, we just want to really exemplify some women out there. So that's why we wanted to interview you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I appreciate Absolutely. it. And I hate the term yeah. badass, but you're a badass, and we're <laughs> so lucky to have had you. You know, Judy, another badass woman in the business, doing it, doing her thing. Um, guys, this was a great conversation. You know, Michelle, we really appreciate your insight. This has been the Saltivation Podcast. I'm Meredith Smith. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.